Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Welcome to the 32nd annual EAX meeting coming to you live from Milan, Italy. I'm delighted to be here today to host this international symposium on sternal precautions and some exciting new research evidence about changes in practice that you all need to hear about. I am Jill Lay. I'm a clinical nurse specialist in San Francisco, California, and I would like to get this session started by posing my first question to Doa El Ansari, um, Associate Professor of Physiotherapy at uh, the University of Melbourne. And my first question to you is, how did you get started with this exciting research? What prompted you uh, to delve into this work? Thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, it's very exciting to be here at, at the EACTS meeting and to bring a team of international clinicians and researchers and academics together. I'm actually an associate professor and head of discipline at the University of Swinburne in Melbourne and in the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and the Royal Melbourne Hospital. As you know, stenotomy is the most commonly performed surgical procedure around the world. It's performed in over a million cases, and until now, the post-operative care is very archaic. So, sternal precautions in the form of restrictions of the use of the upper limb and the trunk are still being applied routinely to every person, whether they're 45 or 94. That means that if we are to look at what's happening uh, following surgery, patients are asked not to use their arms, to get out of a chair, not to use their arms to get out of bed, or to even use their arms to open a door. This means that this, uh, these restrictions, um, they actually pose a dilemma for us as clinicians, nurses and health professionals, because on the one hand, we tell people not to use their arms, and on the other hand, we want them to rehabilitate and do exercises in the form of active movements. So it creates confusion. So more recently, um, around the world, there's been several studies that have actually shown that uh, sternal precautions are not defined in a consistent way. They're not applied in a consistent way. Um, and also, no one really knows what they actually are. So when you look at one hospital, it might mean uh, not using your arms at all to do anything, which can delay discharge because you can't get out of a chair, for instance. And in some places, they'll say you can use the arms, but not above the shoulders. So it creates a lot of um, confusion. And these archaic practices are actually only based on limited cadaver studies. So at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, we commenced a trial where we looked at what actually happens when you use your arms. When you use your arms on both sides, when you lift them up on one side, when you push up from a chair, and we were able to demonstrate that at the bone using ultrasound, you only get less than two millimetres of movement which is actually within the orthopaedic safe limits at a, at a fracture site. Greater than two millimetres can result when you cough or sneeze. This um, information was 
very interesting and it led me to read some of um, Dr Adams' work and she will talk about this later where she was looking at the forces around activities of daily living and there was a synergy there. Interestingly, in a, patient of, in a group of patients that have an unstable sternum, we found similar results. So when they push through the arms, when they use the arms um, you, bilaterally, they didn't report more pain. They, we didn't see more movement or separation or gap on the ultrasound. So again, whether you've got a complicated um, sternum or a non-complicated sternum, upper limb movements are safe. They're safe and they are required. And whether we tell people to do them or not, they actually do go home and open doors and do other things. So, um, and Jenny has, will, will, will extend to that. My colleague, um, Katija, will now talk about the randomised control trial that she conducted um, on sternal precautions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Doa. Uh, thank you, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Katija, completed my PhD at Melbourne University last year, and I'm now working as a senior physiotherapy at uh, Hospital Chancellor in Malaysia. So in, at Royal Melbourne Hospital, we conducted a randomized control trial comparing two groups of uh, patients. And in one group, uh, is actually a, stat, a normal group that has standard care, that we asked the patient to restrict the use of their arm for all daily activities. At, and for the intervention group, we asked them to use pain and discomfort as their, as their guideline for their, arm act, for their daily activities. Uh, and we encourage them yeah, to we use encourage their arms yeah, at all times. as the as their upper mm. limits. Mm. So, and interestingly, we found that there is no significant difference between groups in terms of their functions, their pain, their fear of movement, and also quality of life. And more importantly is that uh, there is no harm to both groups, and then um, there is no adverse event. And we... we, we we find uh, we thought that the standard precaution, the standard precaution, is actually restrictive. It's overly restrictive, and it may delay recovery. Thank you. Thank you. I absolutely agree. We have applied these standards across the board to every All patient. Right. And I read Jenny's work years ago and was so excited to hear that there's a new approach out there. And so I'm, I would love to have uh, you explain just a little bit about yourself and then the exciting work that you've done with Move in the Tube and what that means. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Jenny Adams and I'm from Dallas, Texas. And I am an exercise physiology research associate in the outpatient cardiac rehab. So how this all got started was I was I was hired there in 1991 and before that job I was a personal trainer and so I knew how to size up people and give them the appropriate amount of weight when they were going to lift weights said bicep curl so one day I had a 41 year old patient named Calvin and he had just had a bypass surgery of course there was a nurse in there who was my boss and uh, I took two 20 pound weights over to him and was going to do bicep curls and the nurse flew over the counter and said, what are you doing? And I said, we're doing bicep curls. And she had a white face. And I said, what, you know, what am I doing wrong? And she said, he just had bypass surgery. And have you ever seen a sternum to hiss? Mm. And I thought, uh, no, I haven't. So I backed off. And, but it just made no sense to me because I, it, it, it was completely illogical. So in 1991, I started trying to figure out why she told me that. And I tried to find out the, uh, 
where it came from, and I found a discharge education booklet from 1977 where a doctor, I think it was a surgeon and a nurse, had written this book, and I guess they just got together and decided to write down, it was a Pritchett and Hole, uh, Pritchett and Hole book that you may have seen. That's how it started. There is no, absolutely no evidence for five pounds, 10 pounds, anything. That's correct. So, so I continued on, and then one of the clinical nurse specialists at Baylor from inpatient came over <laughs> and said she was having a problem, that some of her doctors were saying 20 pounds, some were saying five, some were saying 10, correct. and she wanted me to come up with the right number. Mm -hmm. And so she just she said, this is your problem. You figure it out. <laughs> so the first thing I did was decide to, I got a dynamometer, and I measured things that we do naturally and yes, I found out that a, a glass door at the heart place over at the you know inpatient was 23 pounds pushing a microwave button is five pounds um, pushing up on one arm is 21 pounds and opening a truck is 12 pounds yeah a truck door so like Doa said uh, everything that we tell them not to do they do anyway mm -hmm. and when they get to cardiac rehab they've already broken all the rules and then we hand them the three pound weights regardless of if they're a 50-year-old bodybuilder mm -hmm. or a 90-year-old grandma. Exactly. So I still couldn't see the logic of it. Mm. So then the nurse came back over again and said, uh, I, need a, I need a number. So I did a cough study, and I, we measured the, the pressure of a cough and found the mean pressure to be uh, 60 pounds, mm. and that was higher than lifting two 20-pound weights. Because I remembered Calvin, and I thought I'm going to at least be higher than the two 20-pound weights. And so when she came over the next time, she would come over every two or three years and ask me if I had a number. I said, I got a number. And she said, I said, 60 pounds. And she said, 60 pounds, that's too much. You know, and I said, okay, so I, so I thought of the sneeze study. So I was still searching for this magic number. And so we actually put a tube down people's esophagus and we measured sneezes while they were lifting weights. And we did modified weightlifting. We did high intensity weightlifting, one rep max. And we did low intensity weightlifting. And the sneeze mean uh, between in the groups was 90 pounds. And uh, so I thought, man, she didn't go for 60. She's 90 is going to be crazy. And then, and then my brother told me that my study had meant absolutely nothing because he said, are you telling me that you're going to give your patients, oh, the sneeze was 90 pounds. I don't know if I said that or not. 90 pounds. So he said, are you going to give your patients 45-pound uh, dumbbells and ask them to mm. do flies? And I said, No. And he said, well, then what, what good is it? And I had a light bulb moment, and I thought, there is no magic number. That's right. There's just not one. That's right. So I stopped doing that, and I just thought, it just seems like if you just kept your elbows in, because I, I have a skeleton on my desk, and I move it up and down, and nothing happens on the sternum. So I thought, why don't we just keep our elbows in and do anything we want? I just don't see how it's going to have an effect. And furthermore, one of the issues I have is, let's say the doctor that said 20 pounds was okay, my brother could have asked me, would you give 20 pounds to an osteoporotic 90-year-old lady? Mm. So the 5 and the 20 wouldn't be good for her. So it, yeah. it need, we need to be treating the patient individually. So I, I simply um, drew some tubes on a piece of paper, and then I took these, uh, these movements. We, we called it Keep Your Moving the Tube. Um, and, and I took the sheet from the inpatient uh, floor where they said don't lift anything over your head don't push your wheelchair don't lift anything off the floor so all these movements and when you get out of bed you know you have to do log rolling method which was basically the tube and I just put a tube around it um, I just put a tube around the uh, people doing the motions that were on the, the discharge education thing 
it was just an idea. And then I drew the, drew the other ones and, uh, and put them out of the tube, doing the same motions, and put red around that. And then I just did, originally, I just did this side over here. And then I sent it to, because I'm not a physical therapist, and I didn't realize there was a problem in inpatient. So I sent it over to an inpatient physical therapist, and she said, you didn't get them out of bed. And I said, oh, we need to do the bed. So they took some bed shots. So we put a tube around that bed. And then uh, I tried to get this published in three journals. They all declined. And, I, you know, they just said it was a great idea, but to just keep trucking, you know. And so I got a little bit down about it. And, uh, and then my journal at Baylor, the Baylor University Medical Center Proceedings, understands what I'm trying to do because they know I've been doing this for 25 years. And they said they would put it in that journal. So luckily that journal's in PubMed. And so I was done. That was in 2016, and I thought, people can use it, people can't, I've done all I can, I've got the answer, and then nobody called. So I just kind of got, I got a little bit down, because I thought, and then one day, Rick called. <laughs> and that was it. it. It was like he, he got it. Right away, he understood, because he's an inpatient, and he understood, and he could actually, the idea was for an outpatient firefighter. I wanted them to be able to lift their hose and all that stuff. I didn't even understand the difficulties that a physical therapist had in inpatient. So the idea blossomed into a whole other area of the hospital. And I think it's even much more important to use it over in his area. So that's my story. That's wonderful. And I can't thank you enough for that contribution. And I would say that many, many wonderful research ideas start with that epiphany of there has to be a better way. But you pointed out an important point. Once you come up with this great idea, you have to implement it. And you have to get people that are willing to make change. Mm. So Susan, can you talk to us just a little bit about how you actually took this idea and made it work at your organization? Definitely. Our idea came from our frontline staff. They also were struggling, like Jenny was, to, you know, these standards make no sense and they're all different and how do we know where they came from? So they came to me and said, well, can we change this? And I said, yes, go to the literature, see what you find. And um, Rick, um, who you'll talk to in just a minute, um, found Jenny's article. It actually wasn't even an article yet, it was the abstract. And, and they got on the phone and they started talking and they brought it to me. And while sterner precautions didn't make sense, they explained the tube to me and that made sense. And fortunately, um, I'm the director of rehab at Memorial Healthcare System in Hollywood, Florida. And fortunately, we work for an organization that empowers us to do the right thing for our patients. So it was a never a moment's hesitation for me um, to go. So we were fortunate enough to go visit Jenny, to see her lab in action, to see what she did. And we came back and I had so much respect for her work and what she did, I felt like she had given us a gift and that we needed to treat it correctly. So when we came back for our implementation, we made sure that it was a very structured implementation process. We informed our administration because if anybody has a problem with it, that's where they're going to go. So we needed them to know first what we were doing and why we were doing it. We made sure that everybody went through a competency so that not only did they understand the concept, but we could see that they could employ it correctly with their patients because we didn't want to ever be a situation where somebody thought they were using the tube and they weren't and a patient got hurt. So we made sure that it was very structured. We made sure that they could demonstrate their skill and ability to do it. Um, and, and we got everybody on board. We brought the team together from the surgeons and, and the, the nurses and the PCAs. We educated patients and families. So it was a very long process. Um, when we got back from Texas, our group was ready to go and I was holding everybody back because I just wanted to make sure that we did it the right way. Um, you know, we, this is our obligation as our professions have grown. We are required now to base our practice on evidence. And Correct. we have for years and years and years been practicing something that isn't evidence. Yes. So really it's our duty and obligation yes. to, to, to look at these yes. things and to put them true. into practice. <laughs> so I think it's really important that you do that, that you do it in a... In a um, a very structured fashion um, that everybody on the team is involved and that's really what's helped us succeed is that we've had that and also having 
a champion at the bedside because it's never a straight road. This isn't just implementing a clinical practice. This is a change in culture. For decades, we've been doing this sternal precaution, even though no, it didn't make sense to anybody, we've been doing that. So it's really important that you understand this is a cultural change. It's not gonna be from step A to step B and you're finished. You're constantly having to educate yeah. and remind people what you're doing and why you're doing it. And as long as you keep your patient at your focus um, and understand and really believe that this is for their betterment, you know, you're gonna get there. Fantastic. And it sounds like you had a very big role in this. You're where the rubber meets the road, as we like to say. Patients were the ones that you got to share this with. How, was their, how did they react to it? Well, uh, my name is Rick Gatch. I'm a doctor of physical Thank therapy, you. and I, too, work, uh, also work for Memorial Healthcare System. And the patients are ecstatic. And, and I just would like to say that, you know, I, I've heard that saying, but I really do believe it's true, that... Um, the master, when the student is ready, the master will appear. And I think Jenny's concept of mindful movement after sternotomy, really, if it would have come before it did in, in 2015, actually 2016, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Now with the uh, implementation of evidence-based practice and, you know, gone are the days that, you know, the surgeon or the doctor is the person that drives the, the team. It's a multidisciplinary approach. And everybody brings their skills and their knowledge and their experience to the table to make an informed decision amongst the members. So as a result of that and our healthcare system's vision and students, students um, Susan's directorship, it allowed me to implement it with the team. And then I was thinking about this this morning and it it's just as rolling out as we speak, but I've been doing this for just over 25 years. So walk with me as I do the numbers. Let's say that I see 10 patients a day. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but let's just do easy math. 10 patients a day, five days a week, 50 patients a week, take two weeks off for vacation, right? So that's times a year. Now that comes out to 25 years, just over 62,000 patients. Well, who sees 62,000 patients? So let's cut that in half. Instead of 31,250, let's look at 30,000 patients. Still too high, let's cut it in half again. That's 15,000 patients. So one could say that conservatively speaking, I personally have worked with 15,000 patients in my career. Yeah. Now, how many sternotomy procedures has any surgeon in the country performed? 15,000, 20,000, topic for another day. But back to the numbers. Every patient that I worked with as a physical therapist now, as a doctor of physical therapy, we have to keep in mind that every patient has some type of consideration, whether they're a sternotomy patient or a patient after a sternotomy or a patient after an ORAF for a femur or someone with COPD, right. whatever it is, the therapist walks into the situation not only just looking at vital signs and numbers, but looking at the symptomatology of the patient, looking at how your intervention is impacting that patient medically, physically, mm -hmm. psychosomatically, et cetera. So as a result of that, I've been practicing mindful movement for years, and the people that came before me have been doing it for longer. Jenny was the one that came up with mindful movement after sternotomy, and it's really just that, mindful movement after they've had this procedure, because the way I see it, and I'm a simple man, these patients no longer are cardiac patients. They're now orthopedic patients because their cardiac function has been repaired. Their ejection fraction has increased, their vascularity has improved, et cetera. <laughs> now, of course, they still need medications and monitoring and whatever, but the bottom line is, I see them now as orthopedic patients with cardiac considerations. So as a result of that, we've partnered as a team and multinational team working together, international, and now we're creating research and there's more publications to come. But the takeaway is this, the patients now are more functional than ever, 
are, and here's the question, surgeons and everybody else wants to know, what are your readmissions, your revisits, your superficial or deep dehiscence? Zero, 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 zero. There has been no negative effects as a result of mobility and utilizing keeping moving the tube, mindful movement after sternotomy, since we implemented on March 9th, 2016. That's fantastic. And I can tell you that Rick and his team have come to my door many times, and this big guy and tears in his eyes with the impact that it's had on his patients. He had a professional athlete who was twice as big as Rick, and yeah. he was told he couldn't lift his newborn baby because the baby weighed more than 10 pounds. I think the baby was 11 pounds. Yes. Um, and so they went and they put the weights in a pillowcase and they, you know, you know, did the mindful movement. And when they were sure he was safe, they allowed him to hold his baby. And it made all the difference in the world. This was a relatively young man who clearly had the strength to lift, you know, 20 pounds, but he couldn't hold his baby. So it's those types of moments that just make you feel like we've done the right thing and make you want to spread the word and, and, and have other patients beyond our scope experience that same so right. level of We freedom. now have very robust research at a bone level. Um, looking at bone micromotion, looking at functionality, randomised control trials that show there's no adverse events. It's very important that around the world as health practitioners, we have one consistent message, one consistent approach. <coughs> Keep your move in the tube that uses short lever arm and the principles of safe biomechanical movement to perform everyday tasks. Upper limb exercise is an essential part of rehabilitation. I am so glad that all of you were able to share this today. I have been a believer in this work, as you know, for many years um, at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. We didn't have the benefit of all of this. We were just telling our patients to keep their elbows in and pay attention to pain. And so we were already doing this. And yes, so I can appreciate right. all the hard work that every one of you have contributed to this. And it is my absolute goal that this video is shared not only with the CTS Not audience, but talk to your friends friends. Make sure they're aware of this. If you go to the CTSnet website, you will be able to look for information about how to contact these authors. And we really, really hope that this stimulates the change in practice worldwide that our patients deserve. So thank you all for being here and goodbye from Milan. Thank you for listening to CTSnet to go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.